You are listening to Your Practice Made Perfect, support, protection, and advice for practicing medical professionals. Brought to you by SVMIC. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Brian Fortenberry. In our previous podcast, we were discussing HIPAA, HIPAA compliance, all issues regarding HIPAA with Ms. Loretta Duncan, who is a senior medical practice consultant with SVMIC. In this week's episode, we're going to continue that discussion and gain more information. I have been to some doctor's offices fairly recently, and and in the waiting area, it almost looked like wallpaper. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are these things posted everywhere about uh, these privacy notices and all of this. Mm -hmm. Are they doing that because it's absolutely necessary to create HIPAA wallpaper in their waiting rooms, or are they just doing this as a, hey, it might not be a bad idea kind of thing? Well, unfortunately, HIPAA wallpaper is still required. Gotcha. It has been required since the beginning of the rule. But I'm glad that you brought that up because there is, again, some confusion with the notice. The notice of privacy practices is what we're talking about. That's the six or seven page long document. And you have to sign that periodically as well, well, right? Well, let's talk about that. And I'm glad we're talking about this because this will clear some of this up. The requirements around the notice are, number one, you do have to post it in a prominent location. And posting, you know, that's as descriptive as the rule gets, post in a prominent location. So in my mind, and I think in most OCR investigators' minds, that means you're going to have to put it up on the wall in probably the waiting room. Now, I have seen it in binders, like sitting on a coffee table with HIPAA across the top. Oh, really? But... And I think that was a trend for a while because who wants to put more stuff on your walls? Right. Right. Especially in a very nicely decorated office. Nobody say wants the, that. The decor doesn't yeah. really match, to right. be honest. However, I have heard from OCR officials that the binder is not compliant. Ah. So if you've got a binder out there with your notice in it, you need to go ahead and, and post it. But fortunately, we have a resource for that on our website. We have a fillable PDF poster format that can be completed so that it's not as tacky as six or seven pages. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, and what we can do is in the podcast show notes, we can Good. refer to that and uh, people Perfect. can have access Perfect. to that as well. So there there does have to be some HIPAA wallpaper, but we can help with that. What yes, when we can make it prettier, I guess. Very good. And the other thing, you mentioned um, signing it periodically. Yeah. The requirement is to provide a copy of the notice, not just a summary, but that full notice right. to each new patient on their first visit. So it's a one and done. So you really only have to do it one time. You don't have to do it annually or anything. Okay. No. Now, what the patient needs to do is they need to sign an acknowledgement stating that they've received it. And over my years of doing this, I have seen acknowledgements state that the patient has read, understood, you know, can recite it. That's not necessary. (laughs) All that's necessary is a simple statement that says, I acknowledge I have received the notice. But the important thing is, is to make sure they get it. I just took my mom to the doctor a couple of weeks ago. They wanted her to sign all these things, and one of them was an acknowledgement of receipt. We didn't have it. 
Wow. I'm kind of a HIPAA geek, so guess what I did? <laughs> you called them on it, right? I just asked them for a copy, and they got a little snarky with me, but anyway. Well, hey, but that's the rule. And it is. And you know what? By doing that, you're saving them a headache down the road. I hope so. I hope so. I don't think they looked at it that way, though. Well, you meant it that way. I know you. <laughs> are you kidding me? Business associates. Who are business associates, and, and what is required to be HIPAA compliant when it comes to business associates? Because okay. I think this is something practices deal with fairly often. They do. They do. And there's some confusion about who business associates are. Um, number one, business associates are not cleaning people. Your cleaning people are not your business associates, so they don't have to sign a business associate contract. And okay. so I'll explain. A business associate is any individual or third-party that is not a member of the workforce, so not an employee, that provides a service to you that involves your protected health information. So cleaning people, yes, they provide a service for you, but that service should never involve, it's not meant to involve your protected health information. But your collection agency, right? that's going to involve, their service to you is going to involve your protected health information, your billing system, your electronic health records vendor, All of them are going to involve, that's going to involve your protected health information. So your requirement to be HIPAA compliant is to have a business associate agreement in place, which we also have a sample online. Fantastic. We'll make that available as well. What happens because things go wrong, right? You end up having a situation where some records were sent to the wrong place or something is lost or there's a breach of some type of health care information. What if a patient files a complaint? Then what? Well, what happens if the patient files a complaint with you, you need to address it and document it and make sure everything is 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 good um, as to to the extent that you can. Sure. But and nothing else goes beyond that. It's not you don't have to report complaints that come into your practice. But if a patient goes to the next level and files a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights, then The Office of Civil Rights is going to send you a letter. In most cases, that's what happens. They send the letter to the practice, and they indicate what the complaint is. And in most cases, if if it's a minor issue, they will typically just cite the part of the regulation that the patient has complained about and give you a friendly little reminder. They don't even ask for a response. Okay. They might just say, here's what you're supposed to do. Make sure you do it. We'll keep this open for the next six months. If we if we hear any more complaints, then we may delve in further. But basically, that's it. I refer to some of those types of letters as, hey, it's been brought to our attention letter. Exactly. So it's kind of, hey, we have been informed this. Remember, this is the rule and no more, right? And don't do it again. Okay. Exactly. But there are some cases where it may be a violation that is a little more serious. And so the Office of Civil Rights may initiate an investigation. Typically in cases where there has been a breach of patient information and that breach involves 500 or more of your patients, you will be investigated. And in fact, I was talking to a practice about a year ago that when you have a breach of 500 or more, you have to also report that to HHS through their online portal within 60 days of, of discovering that breach. And when it's reported, this particular practice reported it on a Friday afternoon and was called by an investigator on Monday morning. Wow, that's fast. It surprised me that they are moving that fast. So when you have a breach of patient information and it's a large number, 
that's going to warrant a whole lot more attention than one patient complaining about you talking too loudly in the exam room. And this is always interesting to me. And being as vague as we need to be, what are some of the things going on out there that people go, boy, this happens more than you would think, and it's a breach, and people don't even realize it's a breach, whether it be when you sign in, what is a breach there, or overhearing conversations Mm -hmm. like you were saying, or things like that. In your experience, what are you seeing as some of the things that are breaches that are seeming way too common that people might need to know about? I think something that happens quite often goes back to that work-related reason to access information. I get a lot of calls from practices where an employee or physician has decided they're curious about a patient, whether it be in their practice or maybe the hospital record system, and they've decided that, well, I have the ability to log in, so I'll just take a little peek. And a lot of those are probably not being reported as they should. But that's the importance of running audit reports and getting those red flags because the practice does have an obligation to periodically audit their records and determine if that activity is happening. And if it is, they have to address it. Now, you mentioned, you know, signing in at the front desk and patients overhearing conversations. A lot of those are not breaches. A lot of those are considered incidental disclosures. And an incidental disclosure is not a violation of HIPAA if it is a as a result of a permitted user disclosure. So, for example, when HIPAA first came out, everyone freaked out about calling patients back by their name. Oh, really? Yes. So when the nurse comes out and says, uh, Stan Jones or whatever. Exactly. And so I would go into these practices and they would be using a number system because they thought, well, we can't call a patient by their their name. And that was never, again, another misconception of HIPAA. And so that is an incidental disclosure. If you're taking a patient back to an exam room and a physician and a nurse are discussing scheduling a test for another patient, unless the physician is yelling down the hallway to the nurse, you're probably okay. okay. If they're using reasonable safeguards, that's an incidental disclosure. When the law was written, it was understood that we can't keep a patient in a little privacy bubble from the point they come in until they leave. It's impossible, wouldn't it? Yeah. Right. But you do have to be careful. You don't want to have a discussion at the front desk about a $1,500 past due balance and you're going to terminate the patient if they don't pay it. That should not happen at the front desk. That's, That's a private conversation that should happen. One that just popped into my mind was a young lady going to her OBGYN And as she's coming out the door, the receptionist says, congratulations on finding out you're pregnant. Yeah, that that could not be in it. And see, the difference there is that's not a permitted disclosure. So that would not be considered an incidental disclosure. That would absolutely be considered a violation. And that brings up another point, you know, conversations within the practice about patients, again, there needs to be a work-related reason. And it's different because it, when you work in healthcare, you're really held to a different standard when it comes to patient privacy. And you can't just sit around and talk about the interesting patient that came in this morning. Right. And as tempting as that may be, mm-hmm. you're right. It's a violation. And then there's repercussions of that. Absolutely. That being said, when somebody is found guilty mm-hmm. of a HIPAA violation, What kind of penalties are we looking at? And in particular, can you go to jail for that? 
Well, the short answer is yes, you can go to jail for a HIPAA violation, but there are really two different sides to this. There are civil monetary penalties, which are really assessed to the covered entity. And those are for things like if someone committed a HIPAA violation at a practice, the Office of Civil Rights would look at that and go, did the practice do what they were supposed to do? Did they train the employee Was there malicious intent or was it just a lack of training? And so if they determine, okay, it's on the covered entity, then those penalties range anywhere from $100 to $1.5 million per violation per year in which they occur. Now, there are criminal penalties associated with HIPAA violations. There's basically three categories. The top category is basically being curious or gossiping about patient information, and that can lead to one year in jail. That was the, we're sitting around talking about the interesting patient that Mm -hmm. just came in the office. Exactly, exactly. Or we're looking up ex-boyfriend's, new girlfriend's record to see what's going on, and maybe we don't even talk about it. But we looked at it, and we had no work-related reason. And those get worse. For example, if you lie to obtain protected health information, that can lead to up to five years in jail and up to $100,000 in penalties. Again, this is criminal for the individual, not for the practice. And the way the practice is going to protect themselves is they are going to prove that they've trained the staff. I got you. And finally, the largest penalty is if you are intending malicious harm or personal gain. And this this can lead to up to $250,000 in fines and up to 10 years in jail. And the other piece that you don't think about is these are criminal penalties, which means you have to hire a criminal defense attorney. So even if you don't end up paying those penalties, you're going to pay a large chunk of money just in defense fees. One of the things that I've heard about over the last maybe couple of years now that I never even really thought about when it came to that was these rogue employees. Mm -hmm. They have learned the value on the black market Mm -hmm. of some of this stuff, and they're going out and getting it and then disseminating it out. But it seems like they often get caught. Most often they do get caught because, like you said, there's things in place in the practice that catches them, but then you still have to go through as a practice all of these requirements, I guess, by the government right. for telling them and and finding out how many records. And all of that has to be done. It's kind of based on how many compromises you've had, right, as to the regulations you have to go through? Well, it is. I mean, for breach notification, breach notification was added with the High Tech Act and and finalized in 2013. And basically, that requires even one, if there is one unauthorized use or disclosure of patient information, you have an obligation to notify the patient in writing within 60 days of discovering the incident. And then you have to report that to the Office of Civil Rights on an annual basis. But if you have a breach that affects 500 or more of your patients, you have to notify the patients within 60 days, the government within 60 days, and the local media within 60 days. Wow. It is always a good idea. If you suspect that you have had a breach, you need to contact us. Either contact me, contact claims, but we definitely want to help walk you through that. Once you get to that stage of a breach... You're going to need assistance absolutely, to get through that process. That is not something that is going to be simple and that you Mm -hmm. can stop like filing your own taxes here. No, exactly. (laughs) I mean, you're going to need some assistance in dealing with that. Let me ask you this. What can a practice charge a patient for copies of their medical records? Can they charge? Mm -hmm. And if so, 
You know, I don't know that I've ever been charged for a copy of mine, but can they do that? This is a hot topic right now. Again, the Office of Civil Rights issued some guidance on this back in 2016, and we've been doing it wrong for a while, really? just to be perfectly honest. Uh, the privacy rule has not changed. It's always been the same, and the privacy rule allows permits covered entities to charge a reasonable cost-based fee for copies of records to the patient. Gotcha. But what's happened over the years is each state has state guidelines that have dollar amounts assessed to a per-page fee that can be charged. All right. Well, a lot of our records now are electronic. So the per-page rate doesn't really make sense. And what had happened is there were a lot of patients that were complaining to the government about not being able to access their records and then being charged a ton of money for records. Think about a hospital record. Uh, My mother-in-law was in the hospital not too long ago, and she had over, let's see, I think she had about 150 pages of records. Well, they were still charging, the hospital was still charging by the page, even though they were giving a CD. Wow. That doesn't make sense. No. So the guidance issued by HHS really outlined what you can and can't charge. Ultimately, the government would prefer that you not charge your patients for copies of their medical records. But if you are going to charge, you have to calculate your cost. In most cases, and from what I've looked at, none of our policyholder states' fee guidelines would be considered reasonable and cost-based. They're all going to be higher okay. than what the government would allow. And to help practices with this, we actually recorded a presentation that's on our website that really digs into this because it is pretty detailed okay. on how to calculate these charges. But if you're still using the state guidelines to charge your patients, you probably need to to stop <laughs> and look at it differently. There is so much information to be obtained just about HIPAA. And I would imagine there are certain practices out there and administrators and probably even physicians that could easily lose sleep at night just thinking about HIPAA stuff. Right. We could delve so much deeper into these issues. If we have people out there Mm -hmm. that are at a loss, that they have some very specific issues that they're needing to address and have some assistance Mm -hmm. with, they can reach out to you, correct? Oh, absolutely. 90% of my job is probably spent helping practices with HIPAA-related issues. Call if they have a question. Don't spend a lot of time trying to research it because more than likely I've answered it before multiple times. Yes. So definitely utilize the resources that we have available. Because very often you do feel like when you have something come up, that you're on an island. Mm -hmm. I'm the only person that's ever had this question. More than likely, not the case, right? Correct. Correct. Well, they can certainly reach out to you, Mm -hmm. reach out to SVMIC and and get them in contact with you. We're going to provide a lot of information that we've kind of discussed as resources at SVMIC attached to this podcast in the show notes. Loretta, I can't thank you enough for being with us today and discussing this incredibly important topic. Well, I enjoyed it, Brian. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Practice Made Perfect with your host, Brian Fortenberry. Listen to more episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and find show notes at svmic.com slash podcast. The contents of this podcast are intended for informational purposes only and do not constitute legal advice. Policyholders are urged to consult with their personal attorney for legal advice, as specific legal requirements may vary from state to state and change over time. 